The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Let me invite you to take a Bible, and it sounds like a lot of you already are doing that, so I'm very pleased with that, but please do open a Bible with me, and uh, we are in Genesis and chapter 12, still Genesis chapter 12, and we'll be on page 9 in the Old Testament, Genesis and chapter 12. This is our third week in this new series, looking at the faith of our father, the life of Abraham, as we've been going through the the narrative of who Abraham is, or Abram as he's called so far, and seeing how the story of Abraham shapes for us the story of salvation in the rest of the Bible, as God makes promises to Abraham that are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, so that all of the blessings that God has promised to Abraham would come to us as the people of God. Abraham's story is therefore our story as the people of God. And we've been enjoying it so far and uh, today we're looking at the second half of chapter 12. But before we do that, let's pray together and ask God's blessing upon his word. Our great God, we, we love the Bible and we thank you that you gave it to us. We thank you that you gave it to us by way of inspiration So it comes to us as your word, without error, fully able to guide us for everything we need in our life, both as Christians and in everything that we do as believers, our lives as spouses, our lives as friends and students and employers and employees. Lord, we pray that your word would give to us direction and your word would show us in powerful ways that your promises and your grace Lord, speak to us now in the power of the word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear it. Hear God's word from Genesis in chapter 12, starting at verse 10 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife, So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of God abides forever. And we want to see God's truth here 
in this text. So do keep your Bible open and we'll unpack it together. Uh, many of you know the name of uh, Christ- uh, Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. It's, a, it's an allegory, a story of the Christian life. There's one portion of that story, though, that I wanted to share with you uh, into introduction of this text because it very much relates to our text in the scriptures today. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress is about a man named Christian, and he's journeying together at one point with his companion named Hopeful, and they're traveling along the path, and they decide they want to take a shortcut and stray away from the path called the King's Highway, and the path that they take is called Bypath Meadow, and they're not supposed to leave the path, but they do. And as they stray away from the path, they are found and captured by a great creature called Giant Despair who throws them into the dungeon of Doubting Castle without any food, water, or light. Christian and Hopeful locked up in Doubting Castle under the reign of the Giant Despair. Giant Despair tells Christian and Hopeful that they should give up all hope because there is no hope of rescue for them whatsoever. And Christian's companion, whose name is Hopeful, has to convince Christian not to take his own life because he's so much despairing of the situation that they are in. The only time when they see the light of day is when the giant despair takes them out into the courtyard to show the the ruins and the remains and the bones of all those that he has destroyed in his castle previously and then sends them back into the dungeon further to despair. And then when Christian and Hopeful are locked up again, they are just about at the end of themselves when they finally decide we should should pray and ask the Lord to deliver us. And so they pray all night long, agonizing about their fate, locked up in the prison of Doubting Castle and seeking God in prayer. And then Christian says this, What a fool I am, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon, when I may as well walk at liberty... I have a key in my pocket called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in this doubting castle. Christian pulls out the key called promise from his breast pocket, unlocks the dungeon, unlocks the castle bars, unlocks the gate to the courtyard, and they're set free to go back onto the king's highway and walk back in the way because of the key called promise. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, you are missing out. But the tiny little illustration that that provides for us of the promises of God in light of the circumstances of life give to us something deeply meaningful and show us something about this text that we're looking at here in Genesis because Abram had a key called promise, if you like, but he would not use it. Abram had a key called promise, but he did not use it. What we've been seeing so far in the book of Genesis is that no sooner had Abram received these incredible promises from God that he sets off on a path where he fails to trust the God who made these promises. Now, if you remember, Abram was Terah's son and they were called west from the land of Ur to Haran and then God called Abram and said, I'm going to show you a land, but I want you to go first and then I'll tell you once you get there. And Abram said, yes, Lord, and he went. And we find him in the middle of chapter 12 in the land of Canaan, in a land that the Lord finally said, this will be the land that, uh, that you'll live in. And there he is and all of a sudden we find that something drastically changes now you know quickly as an aside here we sometimes think of bible characters as superheroes 
And we read the Bible incorrectly when we read them like superheroes because Abram is just a man. He's just like us. He lives in a fallen world. Now, you and I are not in similar situations that Abram was in when the Lord called him and said, I'm going to show you some new land and I'm going to do all these incredible things. Okay, that probably hasn't happened to us, but we are like Abram, faced with life in a fallen world with trials and temptations that cause us to doubt what God has said to us. And so we're just like Abram in the sense that we struggle to live out our faith and sometimes a faith that's barely hanging on. And when Abram is faced with this scenario, we will find him uh, struggling, yes. We'll find even more so the Lord being faithful. And in that, you know, there really will be some very important things that you and I, if we're going to keep on walking, need to know, need to grab hold of. But first, I want to just remind ourselves what God has promised to Abram. So look earlier on in chapter 12, and let us remember that when God made a promise to Abram, and later on we call him Abraham, that the promise that he made to Abraham essentially involved three things. And collectively, we call these three things the Abrahamic covenant, but it is three things. It is land seed or offspring or posterity, land, seed, and blessing. Okay, look at the text. Look back in chapter 12 and verse 1 when the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And then also in verse 7 it says, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. Okay, so the first element of the promise to Abram is land. And we call it the land of Canaan. It's the promised land. That's why we call it that. So God promised Abram land. But secondly, he also promised him seed or descendants, posterity. Look in verse 2. The Lord says to Abram, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Abram, who at this time has no children, and his wife, like him, is also elderly. They, they don't have any children, but God says to him, I'm going to bless you and multiply you. Children and children's children. And later on, we'll see in the book of Genesis, at one point, God takes Abram out into the night sky and says, Abram, look up, look up to the stars in the sky, and as many as stars as you can count, so many will your offspring be. The promise of seed, children, land, seed, and the third aspect of the Abrahamic promises are the promises of blessing. It says again in verse 2, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Land, seed, and blessing culminate into this thing that we call the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promises. And when we find Abram in chapter 12 and verse 10, there is this seemingly incredible transition that's taken place. What we're going to see here is that Abram, the great recipient of these incredible promises, is slow to trust God's promises. Now, when you see the, the split between verse 9 and verse 10, you have a, a new heading and there's a new section. We have no idea 
how much time passed between verse 9 and verse 10. God called them into the land. They go into the land and they're in the land. And then it says in verse 10, there's a famine in that land. We're introduced to this dire situation that after however long they've been there, this promised land, this place of blessing that was supposed to be so wonderful is actually a famine land. And so Abram decides to go down into Egypt. Now this, this makes sense, of course, because the land of Canaan, the land of Palestine, this promised land is, uh, uh, counts on regular patterns of rain in order to sustain uh, life and crops in this land. But there's this wonderful place called Egypt. Egypt has a great river and uh, a fertile river valley and there's always an abundance of food down in Egypt. And Abram says, well, maybe we should go down there. But it's interesting that in the Old Testament especially, every time there is a movement to Egypt, it is a, a metaphor or a picture of a move away from God. To go to Egypt is also synonymous with going away from God. You find that later on uh, in the book of Exodus when Israel is set free from Egypt where they had been slaves and they're sent out into the wilderness and they go out in the wilderness and God's providing for them but then they grumble and say, can't we go back? Let's go back there. We got fed all the time there. We don't want to eat this manna that's constantly coming from the skies. Let's go back to Egypt which is another way of saying we don't want to go where God has called us. And now here earlier in Genesis, God has called Abram to the promised land. He's in the promised land and suddenly times get tough and he says, maybe we got to go. It seems like a natural choice, but as the text unfolds, we begin to see it's not necessarily a wise one. Why? Because it was this land, the land that Abram was presently in. That's the land of promise. That's the land that God had set aside for them, and Abram says, let's leave it. The land of promise is now a land of a problem, and not only that, but as we go in the text, we find Abram, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And not only the land is in jeopardy now, but notice, he says to Sarai, look, when we go there, they're going to take you. You're, you're beautiful, and surely they're going to capture you and take you into Pharaoh's harem. They're going to take you into Pharaoh's house, and you'll be made one of his own wives. And so not only now is the promise of land in jeopardy because he leaves the land, but if Abram loses his wife, then what will become of the promise of descendants, right? So the land is in jeopardy, and so is the promise of children. This whole seed promise is compromised. Sarah, I'd be taking into a land in which he knew that she would be taken from him. So what happens? He says, well, verse 12, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they'll kill me and let you live. So, verse 13, here's his grand plan. Sarai, tell him you're my sister. That it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. They'll see you, you're beautiful, and when you claim me as brother, they'll let me go and they won't treat me harshly. Now it's a cunning plan and you may actually be interested to know, and this is some bit of biblical detail here, but in uh, verse 12 of uh, chapter, 12, chapter 20, Genesis chapter 20 verse 12 actually gives us the narrative that this is actually partially true because... Abram and Sarai had the same father. So she was, in fact, actually half 
related. But Abram says, no, 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 no. Tell him it's full relation. You're my sister. So to be clear, it is a misrepresentation of reality. It's not forthright at all. It's kind of like um, during the time of the Civil War, when young men wanted to step forward to fight for their region of states, they had to be 18. And what would typically happen is that young men, especially the ages of 16 and 17, who wanted to go fight alongside their older brothers, who were allowed to go fight, what they would do is they would go forward to the offices where they could register for the military, but before they would do that, they would take off their shoes to get out a piece of paper and write the number 18 on the piece of paper, put it in their shoe, and then stand on it because it was in their shoe. And the military officers would say, how old are you? And they would say, I'm over 18. <laughs> Which was true, but yet obviously not true at the same time, right? It's that type of thing, this kind of cunning, partial truth, surely a deception. Now, but to be clear, the major problem here in this text is not that Abram is, to be clear, lying about this reality. The problem here is not that Abram is lying about the nature of his relationship to his wife. The problem is that he is not believing and trusting in what God has promised him. Right? Because, again, in his mind, if Sarai goes, there goes all the promises. Abram thought that God needed help to accomplish what he said he would do. Abram came to the conclusion that if these promises were going to become true, surely I have to get involved to help them along because if this happens, God can't do what he said he would do. And there are times when we think that too about our lives, I think. There will be times when what God has promised to us looks doubtful. And it doesn't seem to appear to be the case that what God has said is true. And sometimes God's promises in our lives have more question marks than exclamation points, if you like. Now, I remember that when I went to seminary uh, because uh, I went to Boston. And, uh, of course, growing up in the Midwest, I know that Boston is in New England. But, you know, actually driving out there, realizing this is really far away. And I, the first day I got there, I got there too early to be able to check into my room, and security wouldn't let me in the building. <laughs> you know, security and all. And I said, well, you know, because it was late, and I thought I had gotten there just in time to be able to get in my room, and they said, you know, I'm sorry, like, we can't confirm who you are unless we go into the registrar's office and confirm your identity, so, you know, sorry. I had to sleep in my car in the parking lot of seminary campus, right? And I remember being so distraught, thinking like, is this really what I'm supposed to do? I mean, really, come on now, right? Like, this is a sign that this isn't starting off on a very good foot here, right? Sometimes God's promises have more question marks than exclamation points. And yet, we're called to trust, and Abram is not necessarily an example for us in this sense. Now, what are we supposed to make of this here? You know, I think oftentimes, if we're just taking biblical characters and using them as some kind of uh, 
moral examples, things can really go wrong here. Because when Moses records these details for us, he is not recording these details with any sense of uh, narrative addition of what Moses thinks about what Abram is doing. All he does is just present the information withholding moral judgment. And so we can ask ourselves, what do we think about this? And you'll note, actually, starting in verse 17 and, and following, that the Lord actually uses... The, the mouth of the Pharaoh, the pagan idolater, to rebuke Abram. So this is what's happened. As they've gone into the land, Sarai's been lost to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's taken her into the, his house with multiple wives, of course, but Abram got all kinds of riches because of it. But then Abram, who experiences all these blessings, as it seems, loses Sarai, and a curse falls upon Egypt's house, and particularly Pharaoh's house as well. So, gone from the land, gone from the promises of descendants, and instead of blessing, now we have cursing. And what happens? Pharaoh, godless Pharaoh, rebukes Abram. Verse 17, So the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife, So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say to me she is your sister so that I took her for my wife? Here we see Abram, the heir of the covenant blessings of God, being rebuked by Pharaoh, the king of the idolaters in Egypt. Okay, And if that isn't all the moral judgment we need on the matter, that is surely sufficient. Now, what, what is this saying to us, and you know, where is this headed in terms of application, and what does this mean, particularly in the life of Abram, and where we see Abram not trusting in God's promises, the point, the point of this text is that God's promises are not conditioned or based on our faith. God's promises are not based on our faith, meaning... It is not the case that the less faith we have, the less true God's promises become. But rather that God's promises are true irrespective of the amount of faith that we have in them. Abram did not trust that God would do as he said he would. But still, what? God is faithful to his promises despite Abram struggling to believe. Now here's where this text goes from here. Notice that it is famine that brought Abram to Egypt. And later on in the book of Genesis, we will find that Abram's descendants will one day go back to Egypt because of a famine again. The brothers of Joseph will go down into the land of Egypt because of famine. And God will bring plagues on Egypt, on the house of Pharaoh, just like he did here. He will do in the book of Exodus. And now... If we're, so we're reading the book of Genesis in a bigger picture here. There's a parallel that's happening. That these events are happening in the life of Abram. And in a couple of generations, something very similar is going to happen. In the life of the nation of Israel who are in slavery in Egypt. And that is because every time God's people are going to wander away from him, 
wander away from the promised land and wander toward Egypt, God is going to again and again and again bring them out to deliver them. Even when it was their own idea to go there in the first place, the Lord God protects His people, His covenant people, because of His faithfulness. God's promises are accomplished in the lives of the people of God, not because of our faithfulness, but because of His God's purposes are accomplished not because of our faithfulness, but because of His. And that is the major lesson, I think, of this text. The major thrust of what this is saying about what will come of the covenant promises for the people of God if they rest in the hands of an unfaithful man. We come to find that they actually don't rest in His hands. They rest in the hands of God Almighty. We don't learn from this text that we should kind of be complacent about our obedience because, you know, if we screw everything up, God's going to dig us up out of the mess so it doesn't matter what we do. That's not the message of the text. But it is to remind us to the very last instance that it is not our faith that assures the continuing reality of the promises of God. It is God's faithfulness from the beginning to the end and everywhere in between that carries us through even the most desperate of circumstances so that His Word would prove true in our lives no matter what. The point of the story of Abraham, again, is not that Abram is such a wonderful guy. Not that he's just some swell figure and everything happens to him because he's just the best among the rest. No, Abraham's story is an Abraham of grace. Grace to a sinner who really screws things up. Men, don't lie about your relationship to your wife. Okay, you can take that lesson from the text, right? But Abraham is a sinner. A sinner in need of a God who is faithful to sinners. Now, that's an individual thing, but just two things here quickly also in terms of the life of the church because it's relevant. It's our uh, annual church meeting, and uh, we're thinking about collectively where we have been and where we want to go, and there's a few things that I think we can draw from this text that are deeply meaningful. We see that God is moving in such powerful ways, even though Abraham is really messing things up. We find ourselves oftentimes, I think, not walking along in triumphal procession along the life of Christian obedience, but we sometimes rather find ourselves stumbling, if walking at all, sometimes crawling and saying, I don't know, I don't know about all this, right? Sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's difficult, wondering if God is still at work in our lives. And when we find ourselves in those situations, like Abram, who was experiencing these difficulties, we can understand two things especially. And the first thing is is that we need to be humble, humble that God's purposes are not going to be accomplished because of Abraham's cunning plans. His plan is a terrible plan, but God's is infinitely greater. And the story of the human race is a story of a humanity that is constantly failing even up to this point. Think of Adam, think of Cain, Think of Noah. Think of the people at Babel. We're only in chapter 12, and that's the narrative of the human race. We try and try and try, and we get ourselves nowhere, and so it ought to humble us to realize that because we share Abram's faith in God and oftentimes his failures too, we should be humble to realize that God is a God who meets sinners in their failures 
so that they would stop looking to trust in themselves and their own cunning wisdom that they think is so great that ends up in terrible situations. Trust in the God of the faithful promises. God has purposed that his kingdom will come not because of the work that we do or because it depends on us, because it depends on his promises and that moves us to humility. So again, we're humble and we say this is God's work and he's doing it, but then does that mean on the other hand that we're not supposed to do anything? Should, should Abram just have starved to death or maybe was, did he have responsibility in the land of Canaan to cultivate for himself and stay in the land of promise? So it gives us humility, but also I think it gives us hope. And I can't tell you that, I don't think anyone believes this as, uh, as needing to be true more than the preacher in the church, right? If God is going to do a work in and through us, it certainly isn't going to be based on an individual, one particular committee, one particular person, or anything like that. But we still have hope that with our humility, we have hope that God is going to do good work through us and that the promises that God had made to Abram will certainly go forward even when they struggle to follow through and do their obedient work, yet God's promises are still true. And that means that there is this endless, infinite, eternal hope in the promises of God for you. Okay? So take these two things with you at the same time. One, that we ought to be as Christian believers, the most humble of individuals to realize that we are not the lords of our own lives, but that we have a God who is infinitely faithful to us when we oftentimes are faithless and it causes us to be humble. And in our humility, we can look to the God of those infinite eternal promises and have an endless hope. Humility and hope in light of the faithful God. And so it falls to us in this generation and successive generations of this church to ask the question, is God's word true? Will he do what he says he will do? Will he be faithful in the ways he has said he will be faithful? And if we believe that he will and believe that he is and believe that he has, then we must also commit ourselves to live with infinite hope. That no matter what, this is true. And we find this perfectly and fully in Christ Jesus, who is our peace. And so let us look to him and to none other. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that in the scriptures we find in the life of Abram, not someone who we are to follow, for you call us to follow the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that through the life of Abram and this sinner who failed in his obedience. Lord, you committed yourself to be faithful to him. And so we pray, Lord, that because you have committed yourself to be faithful to us, that we might continue to walk in humility and in hope, believing what you have said and trusting you to live out the fullness of your kingdom and your glorious promises. Lord, we need your help to do that because sometimes the circumstances just don't appear to be what they ought to be, and yet we trust you. And so, Lord, work powerfully among us, we pray, in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church 
or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.